You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. Welcome in to Socks in the Basement. My name is Chris Lanuti. Sit on down to my nine-foot homemade oak bar in my basement here on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool. Join me. We're going to spend 30 minutes today with a young man who is part of player development for the Chicago White Sox, and we got lots of things to talk about. Before we get to our guest today, remember, if you have any kind of foundational issues, anything going on in your basement, some pump's not working. I told the story just recently. We had water down here in the basement. Called up Family Waterproofing Solutions, proud sponsors of Socks in the Basement. Visit them at FAMWS.com. I think the phone number is sitting right smack dab on the logo for Socks in the Basement. It's very easy to reach out to them. Do so. Tell them that we sent you over there. They do great work. Uh, no pressure on buying new things. No pressure on any of their quotes. Uh, in fact, they basically put an email in your inbox and you get to sit around and wait until you're ready. You hit the button. You say, yeah, let's do the job and the job gets done. Family-owned, veteran-owned, female-owned, Northern Illinois and Northwest Indiana, Family Waterproofing Solutions. Go check them out. It is a fun weekend for Sox fans. It is every year. Ever since 2005, this is a fun weekend. It's the one time that I enjoy social media, really and truly, because it's nonstop, like videos of Canerco's Grand Slam and Pesednik's walk-off and just moments from that four-game sweep of the Astros in 2005. And I can't wait until we get to that, and I feel more confident now than I have in years that we will get back to that mountain someday, that we will climb to the top of it. And I'm just hoping that it happens multiple times and sooner rather than later. But I remember every single thing about 05 on a weekend like this. I was lucky enough to go to game one. That was just a blast. Bobby Jenks against Jeff Bagwell, My father's nervous. I I think I've told this story before. He's hiding on the concourse, like 20 rows away from our seats, behind a concrete post. And if you think he was the only guy who was like a middle-aged to older guy who'd watched the White Sox his entire life never actually do anything, who was hiding up there and pacing like they were in their living room, but they were at the ballpark, it was just, they were everywhere on the concourse that day, uh, that evening, for game one. And Jenks throws the first one by Bagwell, who had just come off of like, I want to say it was a back issue or shoulder issue. My father comes running down the stairs, grabs me by my shirt with both hands and goes, he can't touch him. And then he just runs back up to go hide behind the concrete post. The memories of it. I didn't get to go to game two because we didn't believe the White Sox could do something like sweep and to afford tickets for all the games. We sold game two so we could be a game one of the World Series and then be able to go to game six and seven when we thought the White Sox at home could win a World Series. It made perfect sense then. It doesn't make sense now, but it made perfect sense back then. Anyway, enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with looking back at that stuff and enjoying it. There's a reason you went out and bought the DVDs and they collect dust now in your house, uh, all the World Series stuff. It's There's nothing wrong with having a couple of beers, especially during a pandemic, when you you don't get to go out as much as you'd like to go out and, and sit back and, and watch some 05 World Series. There's nothing wrong with it. Enjoy it this weekend. If you are going out, a couple of things coming up. One thing we're going to start doing with the Saturday show is every once in a while, instead of it being socks in a basement, it's going to be socks in a brewery. 
I love all the breweries in Chicago. Chicago has a great brewery scene, and they're getting hit the hardest. So I've been talking to a lot of brewery owners about bringing the show out live in the absolute safest way possible to hang out with you guys and bring out the socks in the basement trucker hats to give away and all the other swag and maybe get some guests to come join us and drink some beers and talk White Sox during the offseason. The first location for socks in a brewery is going to be the Blue Island Beer Company located in Blue Island. Now, the date is not exact yet. I'm going to have that announcement for you very soon, if not by Wednesday's show, by next Saturday. I've already talked to the owners over there. The only reason we're holding off on a date is because there's been some new restrictions. They don't know what's going to happen to them. We're kind of waiting and seeing what's going to happen here in the month of November. But if things look good in Blue Island, Socks in a Brewery is going to happen a Saturday in November before we get to Thanksgiving weekend. 13357 Old Western Avenue, a great brewery, and they also have outdoor seating. Another brewery in the area that will likely do socks in a brewery at is Open Outcry Brewing Company, but you can visit us anytime you want to. They have individual cabins that seat 8 to 10 people. They have a great system that allows them to continue to have people sit indoors because they're not too big and they can follow any mandate that's going to get handed down. They've got great beer, great food. One of their lodges is the Soundcheck Bar. A local podcast that I do in Evergreen Park called the EP Podcast sponsored it, but it's half EP podcast stuff and half Socks in the Basement stuff. In fact, the Socks in the Basement swag, including the trucker hats, are inside the lodge. and You are allowed to take them if you rent out the lodge. So go check it out. It looks like a podcast studio. There's pictures of me and Dave and the guests that we've had on and, and all the fun we've had with Socks in the Basement sitting inside of there openoutcrybrewing.com. They're located 10934 Southwestern Avenue. And if you want to reserve that, you can reserve it, get all the details. It includes beer waiting for you when you show up with your friends and family. Exploretalk.com. Exploretalk.com. Check out the EP podcast Soundcheck Bar or just look up the Soundcheck Bar at Open Outcry and you'll see Socks in the Basement all a part of it. Go on and check it out. It's a good time. Joining us on the phone line right now, uh, he's been on the show before. We talked when he first got hired, if I'm not mistaken, to work with the Chicago White Sox on player development. Devin DeYoung on the line with us. How are you, Devin? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. I We've talked about it before on the show, so I won't get into all your history. I know before you were with the Red Sox, uh, and you were also with the Windy City Thunderbolts, which is right in our neck of the woods where we broadcast out of. That's in Crestwood, and we're in Evergreen Park. Uh, I drive by your stadium all the time. It's literally at the halfway point between me and Dave's house when we go and hang out with each other, uh, and the two of us do the show together. So we see that place all the time. What a change, though, I would think, from Windy City Thunderbolts to Chicago White Sox. Tell me about what it was like with your your first year, which was which was really crazy if you think about it. You had you have COVID nineteen shortened season, everything like that. But how's it been for you? It was it was definitely uh, exciting and different. It, it was my my first big league camp, so that was uh, that was definitely an experience in itself. And then we get about two days into minor league camp, and then they send us out of there quick. So as far as uh, what we've been doing, we, we've just been trying to be productive as productive as possible and, you know, just kind of dealing with the circumstances, but I definitely love it in the, in the White Sox organization. Spring training seems like it's eons away, but you had this time where you're, you're basically working with the guys as much as you probably possibly can in a safe way while baseball is shut down. 
and then you get to the point where baseball comes roaring back. So were you over in Schaumburg or were you someplace else? Where were you uh, during the season? Uh, I I was sent back home. I, I did not get the opportunity to go to to Schaumburg, and I was I was assigned a, a handful of hitters to keep track of. And basically, I just kept track of their their metrics and and their training habits. Basically, all, all I've been doing is getting on like FaceTime calls with these guys, and and I'm kind of operating it like my private lesson business, where uh, I I give these guys uh, a login to to my booking system, and they just schedule times. Uh, that way, we're a little organized weekly. And everybody kind of schedules an hour time slot or a half hour time slot. And then I can actually uh, at least be present within their training one day a week. And then we just kind of problem solve based on the metrics, their, their movement patterns and targeting some, some deficiencies on their movement patterns and see if we can uh, problem solve to, to find a solution together. So you're working with hitters and, you know, I think a lot of people, when they looked at what was going on with baseball, they had the expanded major league roster. They had a group that was sitting in Schaumburg and then you just kind of forgot about the other guys. And you were like, well, I'm sure they're finding something to do. But what you're saying is that they're, you, you, you know, basically uh sax player development, which I'm sure most of major league baseball did is kind of split guys up in the groups. Like, Hey, you're working with so-and-so during this time and you found a way to basically be doing it mobily. So they're able to work out where they're at. Are you able to still, you know, evaluate, teach, and, and actually see improvement during this strange time when you're looking at things over a screen? Or is it more just trying to maintain? Like, how much can you really teach somebody in, in when, you, when you're doing it over video? It, it's definitely um, a burden that you have to jump over. It's not as good as being in person. If you uh, go about it the right way, we, we mainly talked about concepts and discussed about why certain things happen in the swing. And maybe we can add uh, some sort of like swing prep or, or training regimen in order to create a different pattern in our swing. I, I definitely had a lot of productive relationships built through this time period. So the fact that I, I was only two days into minor league camp, this gave me an opportunity to I, I mean, I had to work work hard to, to build this and gain trust from these guys over the phone and over video chat, but it gave me uh, a new opportunity to, to figure out a new way to build relationships, and it was just a different challenge, but I at least I feel, uh, you'd have to ask those guys, but at least I feel that uh, we, we made some progress, and and I was able to get acquainted with some of the players and, and build some relationships. But I definitely think it was productive because, you know, all our guys have, have uh, blast motion sensors and, and we were at least able to track some of their training. Not necessarily all of it, but we could at least get an idea on if they were progressing or degressing or, or if we were able to correlate if specific drills were beneficial to these guys or specific exercises were were making an impact and moving the needle on on specific metrics so we definitely saw some progress not as much as you'd like to to see in you know in-person setting but uh it i definitely thought it was productive and i i think the white Sox managed the unique situation 
the best in baseball. Now, I, I wasn't in, in the room for all the other organizations, but I, I thought we did a very good job making this time for, as productive as possible. That's awesome to hear. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about your opinion on it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You, you, you haven't actually worked with a guy like an Adam Engel, but I'm kind of curious about your opinion of, of his improvement because you're a hitting coach. You, you, you work on guys with hitting. One of the things we've talked about on our show and that got brought up in broadcast this year with the White Sox is that Adam started working on his approach at the plate a little bit differently. Uh, he went down to AAA in 2019. He comes up and he was a much more productive hitter. Like the numbers show a different guy. Now he wasn't used every day, but it shows a different guy. One of the debates amongst White Sox fans right now is can a guy at that stage all of a sudden learn something that changes what kind of a hitter he is, or is he always just what he used to be? How much instruct, I mean, how much can you fix a guy with instruction? I guess is the real question. You know, I mean, I think guys look at analytics and they go, okay, well, if the guy did this in single, A, did it in double, A, did it in triple A, I can see that he normally gets this OPS. I can see he normally, you know, uh, he, he, his walks uh, against his strikeouts. I can see all those things. Guys pretty much are the same thing. There's maybe a little tweak here or there, but he seemed like a different guy at the plate this year. What kind of instruction goes into that, and can that really happen where you can change a guy at that point in his career? Well, I, def- I definitely can't speak on the conversations or methods that him and, and Frank Manichino necessarily use together. What I, what I could answer is I, I know Adam well enough, and I've been around him enough, the one thing that he does have is problem-solving skills, and he's also on a mission to be the best player that ever lived. And based on the information that, that we have, we, we have definitely shown that he has improved as far as how his body moves. Uh, but he, he definitely he embraces all the tech, and, and uh, he utilizes it and understands concepts behind what will what will make him better. So he's got a very clear picture on what's going to continue to make him improve. So at that level, definitely, I, I think people, players can, can improve. Um, I've seen it multiple times. Now, is it going to be on the same scale as you have uh, an eight-year-old walk into your cage and uh, the finally hits the back of the cage for the first time as opposed to swinging and missing. No, it's not going to be as obvious, but what we're dealing with is we're we're trying to cut milliseconds out of, out of swings and definitely think that him and Frank have figured a few things out to, to help him do that. Is it hard to break the habits of a hitter who's gotten to the point where he's made it through all of his youth sports his high school sports, possibly college sports, gets to someone like you, and he's like, "Yeah, but this is what got me here." Like, like, how hard is it to kind of explain to a guy like, "Yeah, yeah, you got here because of this, but this is about as far as you're going to get unless you make these changes." Uh, it, how much resistance do you run into, especially with newer guys that you that you that you first start working with? Number one, it comes down to building some trust and and credibility. So if, if I'm going to deliver any information to a player, I'm definitely going to make sure that I have a lot of research backed up and I can essentially prove that this theory would be correct. As far as pushback, I, I think every professional athlete, no matter what sport it is, they're going to be protective of, 
of their value and, and their career and, and what has gotten them there. I, I think everybody should be protective of that. I think it's the, the smartest thing to do. That's kind of the, the barrier that I, I focus on. I, I better be able to back up what I'm delivering to these guys. So I try my very best not to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. I, I do a lot of research and and uh, as, as far as making changes physically and physiologically, where we're talking about motor learning and and training the body. If you want to if you want to change somebody's swing, then then a lot of times we're going to have to put some constraints on you and and see if that changes the pattern your body moves in. But it's 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 actually a pretty long and, and complicated process. But if you just kind of stick to some motor learning exercises and treat it as as motor learning and not something completely separate where if you do it this way, it's the right way. It's, it's more so about problem solving within motor learning. Socks in the Basement listeners have a new Southside hangout to watch every game this postseason. Jack's Place in Chicago Ridge at 7000 West Southwest Highway. Jack's Place is a small, clean sports bar with a flat screen everywhere you look. Plus, their private video gaming room is away from the cheers of those watching the game. And with the cleanest bathrooms in town, they are a great date night spot. And now Jack's Place is teaming up with John Natanik and Country Insurance for Teacher Appreciation Days, Union Member Specials, and Police and Fire Fridays. Follow them both on Facebook for dates and details. Plus, give John a call now at Country Insurance, 708-289-9935 for your home, auto, or life insurance needs. Plus, a free Dunkin' Donuts gift card given out to you. And all you have to do is text him right now. Use that number, let him quote you, no strings attached, 708-289-9935. Jack's Place in Chicago Ridge and John Natanik at Country Insurance. They have you covered, Sox fans. Is there anybody that you worked with so far in the organization? You're like, this guy's a sponge or this guy, you know, has got something there that if we keep working on the thing we're working on, uh, it's somebody to look out for? Yeah, I mean, it, everybody, everybody in the organization is eager to, to be better. Everybody is. I, I don't think I know a single uh, professional baseball player that isn't wanting to be better. But yeah, there's there's a few guys that that definitely. Everybody has a different personality and different learning style, so that's not necessarily an indicator for me on if somebody has a chance or a chance on like developing. That's not necessarily an indicator for me. I more so evaluate that as. What, what type of challenge am I up against? How am I going to help this person learn? And that goes into understanding their learning styles. A lot of times what, what I find interesting is, is the guys that kind of come off like maybe they're simple-minded. They, at least they try to keep it simple. Uh, they, they don't want hitting to be more complex than it is. So there's you run into some guys where you explain something to them and they go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then they're able to somewhat flip a switch and just utilize it and, and just kind of look at a ball and try to hit it. I think that's the, the, the beauty of it. And I try to maintain that as much as, as possible because, you know, talking about human movement and, and internal cues, that, that's, a, that's a fine line to ride if, 
we're talking about correcting something, and then they also have to strike a baseball that's coming at them at 100 miles per hour. So that's two different tasks that we're talking about. So I try my best to keep like the motor learning or the changes that we're trying to make separate from striking a baseball. So then, then once we go into a moving baseball, now we can just kind of worry about our batted ball, and hopefully these patterns show up. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious just as a dad who uh, my daughter played softball for a long time. Uh, we went and did a couple of different camps. You know, I, I never pushed her to do anything. It was always she wanted to do it. The moment that she was like, I don't feel like going and doing these camps anymore. I'm like, it ain't her thing. Uh, but I, I came in, into contact a lot with dads, uh, especially. I mean, there were some moms that 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 almost felt like they could they could spend enough money to train somebody into being a great player. And I got a son that's in hockey, and it's almost the same thing. Uh, I, I have him play in his house league. He goes and works with his coaches. His coaches say he'll walk up and ask him questions. I still see that as the right way to do things. And if he's skilled enough one day, then and I need to give him an extra push, then great. But there are people that think they can just throw a lot of money at something and train somebody into being great. Uh, when you sit down and you talk about all these different things and all these methods and everything else like that, there still has to be an incredible amount of natural ability, right? I mean, this isn't like somebody can just give you a bunch of money and become a professional hitter, is it? <laughs> no, I, I definitely think um, uh, there's definitely a physiological aspect of professional athletes. You know, ma- mass, mass still plays. Uh, so if you have a large body, there's a little more room for error to maybe, maybe move a little slower and still impact the baseball. But, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, parents spending a ton of money on an instructor, if, if that instructor is just feeding a slow flip to somebody and saying, see, and it's not a very challenging atmosphere, they, I think that parent should, should reevaluate if, if their child is being challenged enough to, to get better. So my philosophy, what, what I try to do is I try to train everybody at a higher level than what they actually play at. An analogy that that I typically use um, for any level player is, even if I'm working with a professional player, um, you know, I'll ask them, you know, if if you went back to Little League right now and you're the same exact person and you had 200 at bats, how many home runs would you hit? And they typically say 200 home runs. (laughs) <laughs> and so, sometimes they'll go, ah, 150. I'm not that good. Um, but if if they go back to little league, um, you know they're they're going to perform. Yes, they're they're physically ahead of the level, but they're also mentally ahead of the level. They they walk into the box and uh, their their typical environment, what they currently play at, is levels and levels ahead of that. So when they step down to a lower level they're going to perform. So I, I kind of take that theory into how I train people and I, and I challenge them. So, you know, the, the game right now, fastballs are, are thrown a hundred plus up in the zone all the time. So I, I think it'd be foolish not to pay attention to that. So if I'm, if I'm feeding some fastballs to guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it up in the zone and, and try to simulate 110 miles per hour. And our training is going to be a lot of broken bats, swings and misses. And then uh, if we can just shift our percentage of success 
to a a higher number, then then uh, it might translate into the game where when we step into the box at the professional level, uh, it seems a little bit closer to little league than the major leagues. So what I'm hearing from you is that one of the philosophies would be make it real hard, especially on like the minor league players. So when they get to the majors, they don't see as many things they haven't seen before because you're making it more difficult on them during their training. Correct. Yeah, essentially. So I, even, even major league guys that I work with, I'm, I'm training, I'm trying to train them above the level that they're going to see, because if we're, if we're training at, let's say we're just focused on fastball, which I'll, I'll typically, I'll typically have two or three machines going and throw all sorts of variables at them. But, um, if, if we're just training at 80 miles per hour all the time, 105 is going to look pretty fast from Chapman. But if we train 110 all the time, 105 seems manageable now. And it's really just about dealing with uh, a player's perception in the box. If they, if they perceive it as attainable or more attainable, then they're probably more likely to have success. Devin DeYoung works with the White Sox, Chicago White Sox player development a, a weird first year for you, but it sounds like it was really interesting and you got some things accomplished. And you know what? That makes me feel good because I'm going to tell you, like one of the things that I think most fans are thinking is that like it was just those 40 guys and everybody else was sitting at home and you're wondering about like how much of a, a, a harm it's going to be to these younger players and yet they didn't get everything, but it sounds like the Sox were doing a pretty good job uh, with Devin and a lot of their other instructors kind of split up and helping out a lot of the young talent in and around the organization. And Devin, I appreciate you jumping on with us. You can follow Devin on Twitter at DeYoungDevin or just look up Devin DeYoung. Uh, I'm sure Twitter will find it for you in the search bar. I really appreciate you coming on, Devin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Socks in the Basement listeners, do the hard work. And if you're a hardworking man or woman on the South Side, you need to be outfitted properly. And that's why you should visit Red Wing Shoes in Evergreen Park, New Lenox, and Geneva. A work boot specialty store that carries sizes from 6 to 16 and feet as wide as 4E. A 115-year-old company that came out of Red Wing, Minnesota. And one of its largest stores in the entire Midwest is in Evergreen Park, Illinois, ever since 1976. When you're on your feet, the footwear is everything. So why not get an expert fitting? They warranty, repair, and offer free conditioning with laces. And they also carry Carhartt work clothing as well. Located at 3347 West 95th Street in Evergreen Park, Illinois, at 208 East Maple Street on Route 30 in New Lenox, or at 1749 South Randall Road in Geneva. Visit them today. You work hard. You've earned it. Red Wing Shoes. Fun to have Devin Young on. I thought the Adam Engel comments were very interesting because, as he said, he's not there when Mankino's working things out with Engel, but he is aware of the fact that the White Sox know that there's something different about Engel than there was maybe a year or two ago. When you hear Rick Hahn talk about we might have internal options, maybe just maybe, Adam Engel is a real option playing right field most of the time in 2021. I don't know if that's it, but I'm always trying to glean something out of those that we interview. There's a really interesting story that came out on Friday, and it's probably been talked about before. I don't know. First time I saw it, though, was on White Sox Twitter. 
And we were talking at the beginning of the show about the highlights that you're going to see all weekend long is this the 15-year anniversary of the White Sox winning the World Series in 2005. And they put up the Ed Farmer call. Somebody posted it. I retweeted it. I want to say Sox on 35th posted the Ed Farmer call of Paul Canerco's Grand Slam on the first pitch after a pitching change and Chad Qualls came in for the Houston Astros. And I remember they got back to the Fox feed on television and you didn't even have a chance to think about what was happening. That pitch came in as they were coming out of commercial. The Ed Farmer call laced over the video is amazing. And I've always thought it to be Ed Farmer's greatest call. And I, I, I get tingles thinking about it, but basically he yells, there's a drive way back. This one's going to go. Sox lead, 6-4, light them up. I mean, I say light them up, I get tingles. It's amazing. And I didn't even hear the call originally. I've just seen that overlay so many times since that World Series, and it always reminds me of that feeling I had when he hit that home run. Dave was jumping around, hugging another buddy of mine in my apartment in Beverly at the time. I had a pregnant wife ready for our first kid that was born a month later. And I spent the entire time that that ball after it landed and they're running around the bases and Canerico's coming back and everybody's jumping around. Everybody's going nuts on my knees, just staring at the TV with this big grin on my face, just muttering, this doesn't happen to us. This doesn't happen to us. Like I was, I was in happy shock, but anyway, back to the farmer call. As I leave you with this, there is a brand new, I think it's a brand new blog. I've never heard of them until just now. The midway minute. And uh, I'm going to follow them on Twitter and see what's going on with them and any future stories. But they put out a little blog that had a quote from Matt Rodewald, coordinating producer of White Sox baseball at ESPN 1000 at the time that that moment happened. And Rodewald goes on to tell the story to the writer at the Midway Minute. Hopefully I'll pronounce his name right. Kevin Kaduck or Kaduck. It turns out Farmer used to do the station IDs at weird times, drive his production crew nuts. So he said, let's pause for station ID, actually. During the station ID, you're cut away from what's going on in the stadium. That's 10 seconds. In those 10 seconds, Paul Canerco hits the Grand Slam. Ed Farmer has missed the call. And if you remember, Farmer wasn't the lead guy. It was John Rooney. And Rooney would give Farmer one inning a game. So think about how Farmer has screwed this up. Rooney has given Farmer the booth for one inning and the biggest home run in White Sox history to that moment, because you can argue the Pacific home run is the biggest home run in White Sox history. But at that moment, the biggest home run in White Sox history and farmers missed it on the radio broadcast. So the story written about this moment is that only three people knew Rooney farmer and the production guy, they come out of the 10 seconds and farmer is making the call as Canerco is crossing home plate. The radio audience doesn't know. Remember there's a delay. So people, if they're watching it and then they're watching it on TV or so, they would never have picked up on it. If you're listening in the radio, you don't know. But Farmer does the call, and when he starts the call, he knows the result already. Still his greatest call ever. He cheated a little bit, but still the greatest call ever by Ed Farmer. That's an amazing story. Like, I wouldn't trust, I wouldn't trust like a new blog if they didn't have a quote from the guy at ESPN 1000 who is the production guy at the time and knows the story and tells it firsthand. That's an incredible story of true. I believe it's true based upon the quotes that I'm seeing inside of the story. 
Wow, 15 years later, you learn something new still about those 05 White Sox. We're back on Wednesday with more socks in the basement. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you checking in with us each and every time. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Don't miss a show. Go back, check out the old ones. Uh, the, the most recent ones, we're talking about the manager search. We've got some great guests on. We've got some great breakdown of the team, the roster, and what the Sox are going to do next. World Series is almost over, and once it is, I guarantee you, A.J. Hinch, 48 hours or less after the end of the World Series. I'm just making guarantees today. I'm three bears in already. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found. And always on SocksInTheBasement.com.